Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about the 1999 film The 13th Warrior with former co-host and now guest, Ollie Brady. Hi, Ollie. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Wait, I already know the answer to this. I remember when you sent me that message, you said, Ollie, the reviews are in, and apparently there's been too many female voices or something, and (laughs) you just 100% had to get a man who doesn't know anything about history in to talk about movies. And I was like, I don't know if I can do it, but I can come out of retirement for one special movie, I said, and then you picked the 13th Warrior, and I couldn't say no. I couldn't, I mean, I tried to say no, but I can't say no to this film. Exactly. For everybody listening, this is a film. Because yes, this will be studied in film class someday. It's not just a movie. It's a film. <laughs> and also, this is our approximately one year podcast anniversary. So Ooh. for this special occasion, it is the original team back together. It's like twenty six episodes. I know. That's it's, a lot of episodes. That is a lot of episodes. It's mad to think that you can that you could find twenty six I was going to say distinct. There's been quite a bit of Robin Hood in there. Let's, let's be honest. Like, <laughs> but like quite distinct uh, medieval movies or medieval set TV shows and still a bunch to come. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, what is today's movie? I've already spoiled it because I can't stop being excited. Yes. So today we are talking about The 13th Warrior, which is... One of your favorite movies, and I had not seen until we watched it the week before recording this. Yes, and while we watched it, Sarah was loving it, absolutely everything about it, which is why when we get to the end and she throws out this random number she has assigned out of five, <laughs> because it's definitely not the number that that in any way indicates how much she was enjoying this movie. I will explain my criteria when the time comes, <laughs> random made which up are criteria. varied. <laughs> varied well i get it yeah whatever this movie's perfect don't listen to anybody it's well one of the ways in which it's maybe not a hundred percent perfect in that the best uh, casting they could do for a character who is supposed to be an arab muslim man ahmad ibn fadlan is antonio Banderas, who to be fair does a very good job but wow that's like literally the brownest person they could find he's got He's got quite the tan. I, like, they, they went in, they were just worried by the fact that he's an amazing actor. And they were like, you he's know He's not what? even Latino. He's just from Spain. He, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about his heritage. All I know is that they went in and they were like, we need to get the best actor we can. And he went in and he was like, Antonio Batras. And they were like, oh my God. Oh, you beautiful man. And they gave him the role. And he's wearing eyeliner. So, I mean. He is. Why would they, it's perfect casting. The eyeliner is a solid choice. The accent does not quite reach actually being an Arab accent as opposed to a Spanish one. Okay, so Antonio Bideras is in, and he's brilliant. And then uh, who's his best mate, Sarah? Omar Sharif. Omar Sharif. Yeah. First time I watched they this found movie. one Middle Eastern man. <laughs> I could have fallen off my chair the first time I watched this movie. It was like, is that Omar Sharif? Nah, it couldn't be Omar Sharif, especially when he's in it for... Four minutes? Yeah, I expected him to be a much bigger deal. <laughs> but he's good. 
Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a wonderful actor. He does the best with what he has at the beginning. Yeah. Anyway. And that then brings to an end the list of actors that I have heard of in this movie. So Vladimir Kulich plays Buliwif. Fun fact, this is apparently the casting that he got that they, you know, called him up and asked him to audition that he was thrilled about because until then he just kept being given offers to, uh, to audition for being a Nazi. He's a very tall, very blonde, very round-faced man. Yeah, no, I'm not shocked. He, he could make a good Nazi. Um, in a movie... I'm sure Vladimir is a very nice man. <laughs> in a, in a movie, yes, <laughs> I'm sure life. he's lovely. And, and to his credit, he was he was very upset that he kept being cast as like a Nazi and a white supremacist terrorist. Uh, and you said he was also in the TV show Angel. Yes, he plays the Beast, who is a like super cool demon, but he is so covered in assorted prosthetics that you would have no idea that it was this guy unless you just really know his voice very well. To be fair, he does actually have a cool and distinctive voice, so now I kind of want to rewatch the episode and see if I, I don't know, might have been able to pick that out. Yeah. Um, then everybody else, as Sarah has written beside here, is maybe they're famous in Norway. Maybe he's famous in Sweden. Perhaps she's yeah. famous somewhere else. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know how to pronounce their names. Yeah, so apologies to any Scandinavian listeners, because I am probably going to butcher this. I do not speak any Scandinavian languages. Dennis Storhoy as Herger. Maybe he's famous in Norway. <laughs> Sven Wolter as King Hrothgar. Maybe he's famous in Sweden. Uh, also, he's an active communist, according to his Wikipedia page, so that's cool. Uh, I don't know. I mean, how active can communism be? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not an anarchism. <laughs> that's true. That is true. <laughs> Uh, Diane Venora as Queen Uelu. Just, and, uh, it's very yeah. important that I point out that her name is Queen Uelu. Um, she does have a name. She does which have is a name. And once. She, it is spoken. And she may or may not make it to the end of the movie, which is a very important thing on this podcast. It is. It is. And finally, Maria Bonvi. As a character who, according to the credits, is named Olga, and I am just going to state right now, that is not a fact that you would know from watching this movie. Listen, it's a fact I know from watching this movie. You might refer to her uh-huh. as Blonde Woman, but I know mm-hmm. her as Olga. And what do you base that information on? <laughs> <laughs> I... I I gleamed it from watching the movie. I don't know if uh-huh. I just blonde lady is named Olga. I'm sure at some stage in one of the sparkling bits of dialogue it gets it gets mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> but she's definitely a named female character. Uh-huh. All of the times that people say their name say her name. <laughs> yeah. Like before me. having sex with her. The, oh, sh- spoiler alert. <laughs> So, we will see, ultimately, if this movie passes the Ifjecker test. As we yeah. move into it's our first section... the best movie section. ever made, even if it doesn't pass, right? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, uh, like I know we're having fun talking about Olga and how she's beautiful and definitely named several times in the movie. But I think we should start our recap. And uh, I kind of missed doing this, so... Um, <clears throat> Innumeratio. (sighs) 
Thank so you. beautiful. I know, I know. Mm-hmm. My mother uh, will be so happy. She's missed your singing. Yeah, well... Shout out, hi, Mom. Sarah, <laughs> where does the movie start? It starts with a CGI boat, a CGI Viking longboat traveling through a storm while the Vikings laugh wildly at the face of danger and thunder. That's exactly how it starts, because <laughs> Vikings are cool-ass, badass men. Are there any women on they this boat, Sarah? There are no women on this boat. Exactly. Which is inaccurate. What? What? Actually. Is it? Oh, yeah. There were totally a lot of the Viking uh, travels very much involved, uh, like, settling in places, and there were totally Viking women on Viking longboats frequently. I'm going to take a star off this, so we're down to six. Go, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) I think you were, like, starting with ten, (laughs) even though we only go up to five. (laughs) There is, however, one person on the boat who is not laughing in the face of danger. And that is poor Antonio Banderas, who looks like he wants to die. <laughs> I, I love the fact that he looks like he wants to die. And it's one step away from a freeze frame of going, you'd be wondering how I got here. Um, <laughs> it's totally <laughs> that. <laughs> it then informs us that the way he got here, uh, which he informs us in his, quote, Arab accent. <laughs> is a beautiful accent. <laughs> It's a lovely accent. It's very sexy. That he fell in love with a beautiful woman who belonged to another man. As all women do. What? Sarah. <laughs> they just don't. <sighs> He's just, this is the problem, right? We're watching a medieval set movie and we're looking at it with 2019 eyes. And yes, it's true. Not all women belong to men anymore. Ah, more is the pity. I can't wait for the Joker movie to come out. <laughs> Which, spoiler alert, we're recording this the week that the Joker movie comes out. And it's the only thing I can in see Baldwin. in my news feed. It's like, Joker, Joker, Joker. It's like going, oh, oh the absolute assholes who are going to fawn over that movie. I am probably not going to see that movie. Yeah, I probably won't either. So because he fell in love with this woman, the caliph basically sent him off to uh, be an ambassador to the uh, Volga Bulgars. And... <laughs> the vulgar Bulgars? Bulgar? <laughs> Volga Bulgars. Okay. <laughs> it does sound weird. I, that's actually the first time I've said that out loud, I think. <laughs> And it really sounds like I'm talking about about like dinner. Oh, they're so vulgars. <laughs> the vulgar, vulgar grains. Yeah, that's true. So he is then immediately pretty much as we see him out on his ambassadorship is attacked by Tatar raiders and is, uh, by the way, my close captioning on this is an adventure. Uh, thank you, Hulu. So it begins with just somebody as close captioned as shouting in native language. What language? Who knows? Listen, I understood it to be native. Um, I don't know what Sarah thought it was, but it was clearly the language of the vulgar bunkers. <laughs> Which is, I believe, something that would be like some Slavic language, I think. It did feel very Slavic. Yeah, very, very Slavic sounding. Yeah, so he's he's very annoyed that he's an ambassador and he's supposed to be talking to people and instead is running from these people. Mm-hmm. 
he then is basically helped out of this jam that he runs into with these Tatar raiders. I'm going to continue to note their origin because I'm going to talk about it later. Uh, He is helped out of this particular jam by running into a group of Norsemen who are on on horses and are very large and very blonde. Yes, it's it's, I think this is a, a good scene. It um, is, yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to say this about every scene in the movie, <laughs> but they're getting chased by some particularly nasty-looking men. They're got their backs to a river, which looks like it's too deep to wade across, and then suddenly the bad guys turn and run away, and then everybody turns around. And is like, oh balls! There's a Viking <laughs> longship coming around the corner. What's going to happen here? Guess what? We're going to have to have some ambassadorial duties talking to the vikings yeah but talking to the vikings is a challenge because there is not an immediately obvious common language so uh, they uh init- so the vikings are i mean they're speaking i believe norwegian which is a language that they all just would have known it's supposed to be old norse this is fine um so uh, they're supposed to be speaking old norse the um uh, Ahmad ibn Fadlan uh, and his companion Melchizedek are supposed to be speaking Arabic. They try Arabic, obviously no go. The next effort they make is Greek, which also not happening. Uh, and then they switch to Latin. And that then finally is the common language. I would like to note my close captioning continue to insist for the entire segment in which Latin is being spoken, that they were speaking Greek. Yeah, Sarah kept going, Ollie, th- this is, it's not Greek, it's Latin. I was like, yeah, I know, they tried Greek and it didn't work. And <laughs> Sarah was like, well, my closed caption says it's Greek. I was like, you speak Latin. You know I know, I knew it was Latin. I recognize the words. <laughs> but if uh, I hadn't known Latin... My closed captioning would make me think that they were speaking Greek. My other note, by the way, at this point that I am going to make in the continued Media Evil podcast Jew Watch. Jew Watch. Is that although he is not identified as such, Melchizedek is a weird name and not a name that would have been at, I mean, it honestly wouldn't have been like a common name for anyone. But it would, I would argue, have been a more understandable name choice for somebody who is either Jewish or Christian than for somebody who is Muslim. And there is a long history of Jews being used as interpreters specifically for both Christians and Muslims. So I'm going to make the argument that he's Jewish. Having heard Sarah pronounce this person's name, uh, it's the first time I've ever actually heard it out loud. And I'm going to admit that I've been calling him Melch is a dick. (laughs) <laughs> because his name is spelled Melch is a dick. <laughs> it is. And, um, and I did not know that that was not how you were meant to pronounce that. <laughs> so Omar Sharif, God rest your soul, you did not play a character called Melch is a dick. He doesn't. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. <laughs> oh, I got that the lovely CH sound. Yeah, got the uh, So they find a common language, uh, which is yes. Latin, um, which, as Sarah said, is a there's a chance that one of the Vikings probably or could have spoken Latin, but it's not guaranteed. But what I like about yeah. this is it's the first or one of very few medieval set movies that go to the trouble of showing that they don't have a common language. And yeah, I really like that. can communicate with everybody straight away. And they're not all, for some illogical reason, speaking English when 
as Sarah said many times, most of them should have been speaking French. Right. Yeah. I mean, it. I like that there's, it's clear that they don't have an obvious common language. And if they're going to have one at all, Latin makes more sense than anything else, I guess I would say. Not bad. Good job, guys. Hmm. I guess maybe given that they're, it's not impossible that given that they're all hanging out in, uh, in uh, you know, basically kind of what is now, I think, more or less Russia. Anyway, uh, it's not impossible that they would, in fact, all have, like, picked up this local Slavic language, and that actually might be the thing that makes the most sense. Hmm. But Latin is at least, you know, it's not something ridiculous, like, all of a sudden they speak English. What we discover is that the Vikings have had their king stroke ruler. I can never get across. They describe him as king at least once uh, our king is dead. But Bullywith is also acting like a vassal to the King Hrothgar. So I'm not sure if the, the, it's just been mistranslated uh, as king when really it should mean lord or or leader or something along those lines because I can't imagine that yeah. a king would be a vassal to another king. It, not in Norway at the time or not in the Viking. I would say it's probably a kind of, I would say it's probably supposed to be a language issue. Like there's hmm. actually bits with the Latin here and there where they're actually not using quite the correct words. Yeah. Um, but in a way that makes sense for a non-native speaker. Yeah. Of which, like, they not, none of them really are. And so it makes sense to me that king is just the best approximation that they managed to come up with in Latin and that it's not necessarily a 100% accurate description. And if you're doing a little bit of bingo for uh, this wonderful podcast, we get a Viking funeral. And yes. thankfully, this one actually features genuine Vikings. Yes, as I will talk about in more detail later, this is exactly the place where a Viking funeral best fits. It's, it's perfect for that. Um, and also, uh, we'll just brush over this, uh, the king's wife also gets killed and, and burned alive with him. But anyway, we'll move on. Because that has, yep, so, uh, it's, not only it's a perfectly natural and normal thing, should be happening in 2019. That we just murder a lady and set her on fire. <laughs> So uh, his his wife gets uh, gets murdered and burned alive with him. Uh, uh, burned alive? Uh, yeah, I think she does. She, she's. Oh, I thought I thought they might have killed her first. Oh, I well, it, I, I'm I not sure if it's clear. I think maybe they get her incredibly drunk. They definitely get her incredibly drunk. And then she just like dies of smoke inhalation on the boat or something when they set on fire. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so she doesn't survive. Uh, but she didn't have a name, so it's not really if Decker worthy. Um, <laughs> the next morning after they have a big long drinking session, we come across maybe the grossest thing I've ever watched in a non-horror movie. And that is the yep. spit bowl breakfast scene. And for years, and I've watched this many, many times, it's gross. It's not real. And today, Sarah F. Decker told me it's real. <laughs> yep. So uh, I am going to later on in a, in a subsequent segment of the podcast, read a, a detailed description of what this might have looked like to an outside observer. But uh, for now, let it suspi uh, suffice to say that basically there's a big bowl and they all use it to wash their faces in and then they spit in it and then they pass it around. It's, yeah, so disgusting. There's a couple of them blow out their nose is into it as well. They're like, mm -hmm. And it's yep. like, oh. It's yeah, really gross. And uh, yeah, Ibn Fadlan passes. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he, he looks absolutely <laughs> disgusted with it, as, as he would. Yeah, which, uh, which makes sense. He's quite a fastidious and... boy. 
And this, I will say, this is definitely one of those bits that even though I did not immediately know for a fact that it was a real thing, I had a feeling that it might be because it's one of those things that I feel like was just way too weird for a modern person to have actually come up with. Mm. So, and I was right. Uh, So the next morning they're sitting around and he's still trying to make communication to find out where they're going. And he spots another little Viking boat has pulled in and there's like a, a small blonde child there. Sarah's describing him as Aryan. I'm going to describe him as vaguely Norwegian looking because <laughs> um, I'm much kinder to this movie than she is. And he's just standing there and people wonder why he's standing there. Or sorry, uh, Eben or um, Ahmed uh, wonders why he's standing there and he gets told, oh, well, they're le- he's letting them know that he's not a ghost. Yes. And even though I understand what they mean by that, I also think standing there is probably something I would expect a ghost to do. Right? That's way weirder than not just coming inside and saying hi. It's like, I'm not coming in to say hello. I'm just going to stand here and say nothing and stare at you really eerily all morning. It makes it so much creepier. But we find out that he has come to tell that he's the son of Hrothgar. And he's coming to tell Bullywith. Um, which Sarah has written down as Beowulf here. It's clearly not Beowulf. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just not confident in my ability to actually pronounce Bullywith, right? <laughs> Bullywith. But um, <laughs> he, his father's kingdom is in danger and he needs help. So they're like, we have to go. So they go and contact their oracle mm-hmm. who says that we need to take 13 warriors. So she's asking for people to volunteer and we get 12 volunteers and then she lays down the clinker, Sarah. He must be no Northman. Ooh, who's hanging out there? Who's no Northman? Yeah, the 13th it's warrior. It's Ahmed ibn Fadlan. Has to be Ahmed ibn Fadlan. <laughs> I'll get better I as also you go love, on. by the way, that uh, Melchizedek, who is still there at this point, is a very committed translator, including that he like translates basically them just counting along with the volunteer, <laughs> like with like the people volunteering themselves. It's a brilliant scene. I'm pretty scene. sure he could have figured that one out. I don't know. Do we know he could, I mean, he didn't understand that a woman belonged to another man, Sarah. He might not be good at counting. <laughs> He's not the best. Um, so how many men can a, how many men can a woman sleep with in my society? What? Wait, I've lost count. <laughs> <laughs> so they ask him what his name is and he says it's, Ahmed Ibn Fahalan Ibn and then I can't remember what the third name that he says there and then because he's speaking his language and they don't they're just like Ibn we'll call you Ibn <laughs> and he's trying so hard bless his heart to explain that Ibn means son of um, which it does in fact in Arabic uh, it's actually the the same word essentially as the Hebrew cognate is Ben so if you see a you know Jewish person referred to as so-and-so, Ben so-and-so, then that means son of as well. Mm-hmm. Hurry to meet death before your place is taken. That is, is a super cool line. It's a cool line. That's what I'm going to say to any student in my class who <laughs> needs to get somewhere in a hurry. I'll be like, no, hurry to meet death before your place is taken. Um, I'm just going to write that on the board before my next exam. That would be a pretty cool thing to write on your board. <laughs> what is this, Dr. Decker? Well, I wouldn't want to be the last one out of this room today. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, 
And the other thing, which I really enjoy before they set out, is that the Vikings are having a grand old time making fun of Ahmed's horse for being very small. And including the comment, only an Arab would bring a dog to war, which is vaguely racist sounding, but also, you know, the kind of joke that I could see somebody making in the Middle Ages, to be honest. Uh, and they then start barking at the horse, which is legit pretty funny. <laughs> it's pretty funny. The horse goes back and, ruff, ruff. and then he's like, what? What are you doing? Oh, they said your horse is very small. <laughs> <laughs> which is excellent. It's just like, why the fuck is that dude barking at my horse? <laughs> uh, so then we get a little travel montage, which shows yes. them sitting around various uh, campfires and then in the boat a couple of times. And to me, I think it's showing uh, a perfectly natural way to learn how to read or speak somebody else's language, which is just, to, as Sarah says, just to stare at their mouths. Just really intensely, you just stare at somebody's mouths and then just eventually you understand what they're saying. That's how it works. The trip to the north has taken an incredibly long time. So yes. he's been... So what we see is three bonfires and two little sets of the boat. But in reality, that is months and months and months of time. So he's a very intelligent man and he's been listening to what they're doing. And he is listening and he's learning their language. So every now, they're still talking in Norse. And, and every now and then some words will come true in English, which is what you know we can understand. So it's showing that he is picking up the language that they're speaking. And I think it's really well done. Um, as Sarah has written yeah. down here, mostly 80% of what they're talking about is insulting people. Women. <clears throat> Specifically women. It's insulting people. I'm, guys, I understand this is bad. And I know I love the movie. <laughs> and I'm going to try and stick with the joke that there's nothing wrong with the movie. But yes, the gender politics in this are pretty, pretty bad. But I mean, in this perfect movie, perfect natural thing, they insult all types of people with their with the conversations. And he's listening and he's picking up on the insults. They're constantly throwing stuff his way. And eventually, somebody says something about his mother. Uh, I think the guy says something like, like this one's mother is over there. And then uh, Sarah, how does he respond? He responds by then calling them a... Pig-eating son of a whore. You pig-eating son of a whore. <laughs> and <laughs> the whole crowd just hushes. <gasps> What's going How on do you that? speak our language? And he's like, I listened. And, uh, <laughs> and then that's at that point, then we've broken the language barrier and everyone can speak English, which makes things yeah. an awful lot easier for us troglodytes who don't want to read subtitles. <laughs> and I do think overall... A lot about it works. I just think that like an actual learning a language involves a lot more like actually trying to communicate with somebody and then like pointing at things and being like, this is how I like tell I like, this is like how I say tree in my language and all of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I do think the like emphasis on um, like language immersion over the passage of time as being the way in which he learns the language is cool. And I think the staging of it with it kind of gradually turning into English works really, really well. Yeah. And then that's where we learn that uh, Bullywiff, and definitely not Beowulf, uh, says uh, is, is maybe smarter than your average Viking, yeah. maybe more worldly, because when he sees Eben or Ahmed um, doing this, he says, he seems interested, and he's like, oh, great. And he, he's more accommodating, more friendly towards him. Then when they finally land in Norway, he says to him, you can draw sounds. 
Yes, and, and he says I can draw sounds and I can speak them back so I can write and read. Yeah, so Buluif says, show me. At which point he writes in the sand in Arabic, uh, I could, yeah, uh, um, there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And did he write that accurately, sir? It looked about right. It was kind of hard to make out the words written in the sand, to be honest. Um, so Ahmed does this for him and Buluif kind of looks like, He's kind of, I'm nodding my head. I realized I was nodding my head on a podcast. So he's like mm. nodding his head like, oh, okay, I got you. I got you. But it's very interesting that that's Bullywhiff trying to make this thing. And then when they finally get to their destination, the first thing he does when he gets out in the sand, so it's meant to be three, four weeks later, whatever it happens to be, he writes it out for Ahmed. And then yeah. Ahmed's like, oh, so it's saying, and you can really see that uh, Bullywhiff is, is trying to learn to you know, to better himself, to be more intelligent, to be a better Viking overall. Yeah. Although I will say, if you're going to learn an alphabet and learn how to write, Arabic is not the one I'd pick as your starter. It's really hard. And Sarah, would would the Vikings have been interested in Islam like this? They would have. The Vikings were very much aware of Islam, arguably more interested in Islam than they were in Christianity. And there's even a Viking grave that was discovered where somebody was buried with textiles that included, uh, you know, material in Arabic, such as, you know, saying there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Mm -hmm. And it is possible that there are some Vikings who either converted to Islam or had these kind of syncretic religious practices that incorporated aspects of Islam. That's fascinating. If you, if you ask me this before, even before seeing the movie and before talking to you about it, I would never have paired Vikings and Islam in any way, shape or form. Especially because the white supremacists love them some Vikings. Yeah, but I will say I do really, really like that aspect of this movie, that this movie really emphasizes the fact that like Vikings and Muslims did indeed come into contact with one another and that this was not an abnormal thing. So, yeah. whereas most movies that have the Vikings come into contact with another culture, it is with Christians. And also with just killing them. Um, yeah. Because that's what Vikings did, apparently. So, a couple of cool things that happened before this, because I, I, we're just going through Sarah's notes here. Uh, Eben, or Ahmed, is incredibly seasick, because he probably has never been on the open seas before, so it would make sense for him to be in a longboat and vomiting his ring up. Um now, at some point, he's like, shouldn't we stick closer to land? And they're like, ha, 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 no. <laughs> no, we don't have to. Uh, they get very worried about dragons when they're in the uh, <laughs> in the fog. And um, there's a bit where they were shouting Odin really loudly. And, uh, and Sarah's dog thought that they were calling her, which uh-huh. I thought was adorable. It's like, it was very cute. You can see the ears just prick it. Oh, oh what's this? Oh, you just, they're calling me. No, your name is Opie. It's not Odin. Um, first syllable, but uh, then we went in a different direction. <laughs> so Sorry when, when they land, uh, he gets given a sword and he's like, this is too heavy. I can't even lift it. It just want to grow stronger. Grow stronger. That's, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I imagine a Viking would say. Um, so could be a motto on a t-shirt. That is true. Uh, and then a guy shows up and um, they can smell him through the woods and they describe him as an oil silk clad messenger boy. And he looks like he's about 50. Like he's, <laughs> he's there's definitely some age weirdness going on here. And they show up at Hrothgar's, uh, well, I was going to say Hamlet, but 
I think it's meant to be a stronghold. It's. I would go with hall. Hall as the time appropriate term. It's just not a very well defended one. So to talk about uh, the fact that they might have to build some fences to put in some uh, some. Uh, some, so basically something to, to help protect the entire town. And uh, one of them just responds with, I don't want to build a fence. I'm not a farmer. Which is the correct way to think about being a farmer. I'm not a farmer. What am I, a farmer? I wear a tuxedo after six o'clock. Nice turdy rock reference for all of you there. So uh, they talk about what the particular danger is facing them, which is the Wendell, who are monsters i guess in terms of how they're initially presented um i mean they basically just kind of sound like predator uh and it's definitely the wendell and not the grendel wendell definitely. because he's bullywhiff he's definitely not beowulf when they're legally distinct completely distinct the writers of beowulf cannot sue different different enough yeah. to be legally non-suable <laughs> They're definitely going to come back from the grave and sue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, there's then this like crying child covered in blood who arrives. Uh, the queen, who does not yet have a name, I would like to note, um, recognizes him and then uh, knows what farm he comes from. And so takes them to the farm. There is certainly a lot of blood and also certainly a lot of entrails. And Ahmed then remarks that the corpses have been gnawed upon and throws up, which is fair. Mm-hmm. They did, it did a bit where he opens a crib and then like an arm falls out and it's like got bite marks on it. And that's what finally makes him vomit up. And I'll be honest with you, I, if I was in his place, I probably would too. I, oh, yeah. I, the Vikings are all like, hmm, yeah, they've definitely been here. Like as if yeah. perfectly normal. I will say, okay, so clearly I would 100%, I'm sure, throw up if I was in that situation. Totally fair reaction. But there is definitely this kind of disjunct between him and the Vikings. And on the one hand, it makes sense plot-wise, because it is the case that Ibn Fadlan is a basically a kind of courtier and diplomat and not a warrior, in fact, whereas the Vikings are specifically warriors. I do, however, feel like there is, in that he is then the only representative of, uh, you know, Arab, Middle Eastern, Muslim people in the film at this point, and now that Melchizedek has gone, that it does set up a little bit of this kind of Orientalist dynamic of the Eastern people as being kind of like soft and, uh, you know, more effeminate and like less strong than us powerful white Viking people. Yeah, I think that's the way it's set up at the beginning because he's so different from them. Oh my god, my closed captioning is terrible. At some point he just started referring to Hrothgar as Melchizedek. I guess it's just they're both old men. We can't tell them apart. Two old guys, they all look the same to me, which, you know, in fairness, it's probably true. <laughs> so like, they go... My god, Hulu. My god. <laughs> they get back after, after coming from this village and they decide, right, we're going to spend the night in the hall, hide the kids... Hide your, uh, hide your king. Um, <laughs> they're coming in, taking everybody. And, um, <laughs> they hide them all. And, and the king's and, definitely like, I'm going to fight. And they're like, why don't you protect the children? <laughs> yeah, and the queen or his daughter, I'm not sure if she's the queen yet, but she takes a look at them and he's like, uh, she gives kind of gives Bully with a bit of a look of, you know, do something about this because uh, we can't <laughs> say it. But, you know, and he's like, 
you must stay behind us and defend the children. <laughs> and then Rothgar yeah. was like, okay, I'll do that. He's like, yeah, thank God, because you would just die. <laughs> just immediately. Uh, she is, by the way, based on Beowulf, but supposed to be his wife, despite the substantial age difference. I have never picked that. Oh, my God. I've watched this movie yeah. 40 times. He's the king. She's the queen. They're married. I mean, I'm not sure that's clear based on the movie, but it's clear based on having read Beowulf. <laughs> that's why it was but I never put that together. I assumed she was his daughter. No. <laughs> Gets an extra star, though. Oh, yeah. Get, get that young wife. Yeah, so really he looks like he's about to keel over and she looks about 30. Yeah, she's she's a very attractive lady. Yeah, yeah. Um, blonde woman. Uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, so they get attacked by the Wendell. Um, they manage to kill a few of them, but the Wendell take their own uh, bodies with them and yeah. they take the heads. Always take the heads. And they always take they always take the heads. Um, uh Eben, uh Fatlin gets wounded and a blonde woman who's named Olga. Um, she is not named. Definitely named Olga. Her name is Olga. Uh, so Olga tends... And when, when does somebody... Does she introduce herself on camera? Yeah. Does, does he ask her what her name is? She shows up and she's like putting cow piss on him, on his face, because it was a natural disinfectant. And she says, hello, I am Olga. And then she does not say that. And then that he clip says, is, that is a that is a clip not found. <laughs> and he says, "Oh, my name is Eben. Pleasure to meet you. <laughs> we should have a long conversation and get to know each other because later on in the movie we may need to have sexual intercourse with each other. And I definitely wouldn't do that with somebody whose name I don't know. Olga, you say, what a beautiful name. It's definitely happened. Definitely a real conversation. You can you can put the clip in when you're editing." <laughs> oh my editor broke at this point <laughs> and I couldn't find that clip uh, let's move on Sarah uh, so they use cow urine as disinfectant is, is this is this true? oh that's a, I think it, that is true that urine was used had many uses in medieval medicine including as a disinfectant uh, you're the scientist would it work? like that would that actually be better than water? yeah uh, it definitely would be Cow urine does have natural disinfectants in it because they're constantly mm. eating stuff from the ground. They have a higher disinfectant content in their blood than we do, mm. and they have it in all of the body foods. It's also found in milk, unpasteurized milk, um, which is a weird thing, but yeah, it's true. Um, so does that mean if I eat more cheese, I'm less likely to get sick? Uh, I, the answer to that is no, but... Damn it. You should always be, I'm on board for more cheese. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to eat the cheese anyway. I just would like to be able to also say there's a benefit to eating the get cheese. Get that extra slice. Uh, <laughs> if you could find some unpasteurized cheese. Exactly. That would be a good really idea. Real nice unpasteurized cheese. And as Sarah's written down here, and it is lovely to see, it's, it's not often when you have an Arab person meeting a non-Arab race of people where they're not suddenly the best doctors in the history of the world who just out-doctored everything. Right, and it's very much like... Like Cadfell has this thing where, like, oh, he went to the Middle East, and so now he's in. A, he knows all of the medicine, and anyone who, like, you know, he looks at for three seconds is definitely going to be healed, even if they got like stabbed in the gut. Even um, they're prepared for uh, war at this point because they know that they're going to attack again. And he goes and he has this giant sword which he can barely hold. So he and like goes, basically just falls over. He just falls over. He picks it up and it falls over because it is a very very large sword that he's got. So he goes and he gets it cut 
um, into a smaller curved blade, almost like a scimitar. Indeed. Much closer to a cutlass when you actually mm. look at it in, in action. But he, uh, he comes up and he shows it to the other, um, to the other Vikings and they're all like, oh, um, imperfect. I'm going to do the exact accent that this actor right. uses to do this because he's clearly, clearly a genuine Norseman with his red mm-hmm. hair. Give an Arab a sword and he makes a knife. <laughs> that is the Norwegian accent that this man uses. I, I felt like I was home. I mean, he makes, you know, he makes slightly less of an attempt than Antonio Banderas is making. Ah, uh, he makes a knife. <laughs> Can I give that to me daughter? <laughs> Everyone really should be able to hear the like one hundred percent Irish accent. It's it might as well be me talking. That's that's how bad it is. Um, you can star as a Viking. Olga comes back and they have a lovely, intimate moment where they definitely talk about uh, their feelings and get to know each other much better. Um, and definitely do not <laughs> seem to get to know each other on a meaningful level, and also still have not told each other their names, as far as I can tell. They definitely do. Um, Herger, uh, see, at this point, we get introduced to the son of Hrothgar, who I thought was Queen, um, Queen Wilhelm's Willie, uh, uh, brother. Um, but he is basically scheming in the background because he doesn't like the fact that Bullywhiff is here because he obviously sees him as a threat. Um, so he's trying to start some sort of... He's maybe trying to incite some some beef between them. Yeah. So Bullywhiff... Is this the dude that's just named Angus? Angus, yes. Angus, of course. That most Scandinavian <laughs> names. So um, I mean, he's, maybe he's, you know, he's kind of from, like, not quite the same place, but kind of a neighbor of that... Uh, <laughs> they're, they're close enough. <laughs> um, so Herger, who has been Eben's best friend, he's the one who was speaking Latin at the beginning... Um, and yeah. he goes up to Bullywhiff and he's like, okay, maybe we're going to have to start something. Um, so we're going to have to start a bit of a fight. And uh, Sarah's described it, semi-toxic masculinity fight. Um, it's like toxic masculinity plus politics. Pretty much what it is. So he starts <laughs> a fight with a really, really big dude named Angus. Angus? <laughs> and um, Who's like twice his size, definitely. Yeah. And Herger lets him basically kick his ass for a bit. Uh, and then at the very end, when this king's son gives the nod for uh, Angus to kill him, Herger just in one move cuts off his head and then yep. explains to Eben that, uh, yeah, they didn't know, now they, they don't know how strong they are, they don't know how good the Vikings are in battle, so they're not going to make a move because they'll be worried that the 12 Vikings or 10 Vikings who are left at this stage would be able to kill all of them. So it's very clever, but it is a shame. As Bullywolf says when he comes down, definitely not Beowulf. As Bullywolf says when he comes down, uh, yeah, problem is Angus is a really good fighter and now we don't have him. So Whoops. that was a waste of a good man, basically. Yeah. It also is very much, I, I think this actually is coming from, like, from Beowulf, but it does seem to some extent to solve a problem that was only just introduced and then is never mentioned again. Yeah, because I think <laughs> he just kind of disappears. The, yeah. the son disappears after this. Right, yeah. Like he doesn't show up in the rest of the movie, so maybe he was that scared. Yeah. Um, and uh, Herger looks a bit like uh, Scandinavian Gary Oldman, as Sarah says. He really says. does. 
Like he looks specifically like Gary Oldman as Sirius Black, but like blonder. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah. Then we get another child uh, who's on the outside. They've, they've kind of they, they see the Wendell coming. Um, there's loads of fog comes in, and we get to see the glow worm, which uh, turns out is just people on horses holding torches. Right. Um, but there's still no another, dragons. Still no dragon. Just, I'm disappointed because dragons make everything better. I know, um, right? It is oh, dragons are the best. Uh, this was the dragon times. <laughs> it is the dragon times. Um, <laughs> one thing I did say is nobody managed to get uh, George R. R. Martin in this, so we're always good for that. That's what that's what I described. That's true. Uh, there yeah, aren't enough women. There, there aren't, aren't enough women to get raped. <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> no props, though. Seriously, uh, <laughs> there there are a lot of things that I have watched, and that will be shortly upcoming episodes that. Uh, uh, wow. Cannot wow. wait for that episode. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, there's a horse or there's um, a child on the outside and uh, Eben manages to use his tiny little horse to jump over the spikes that they've built um, to get out and save her. And he sees that they're just people on horses. He comes back and he's like, oh my God, they're just humans. Like, we don't have to be yeah. worried. And uh, Hergert calls him by his name instead of little brother or Arab. And it's really nice. And they give him some meat to drink. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and also, I love this. So, okay. First of all, I do just want to note the fact that they are just like, they're just dudes in costumes. They're basically just furries. Grendel is their fursona. <laughs> <laughs> they are furries. Uh, very angry furries. Um, that so, eat people. Yeah, that's true. They eat people. They managed to cannibalistic furries, as you've written down here. They managed to survive the attack um, because it starts to get light and they leave. They've killed a few of them. I definitely discovered that they're just people. Uh, Herger, uh, there's a bit where uh, Antonio Banderas realizes that they're just men, and Herger turns around and he still thinks they're beasts or whatever, and he's after killing one, and he mistakes uh, he mistakes Antonio Banderas's shock at annoyance that Herger had killed the guy that he was about to kill. He's right. like, don't worry, little brother. There's plenty more. <laughs> what a weird thing to say, but yeah, that's true. Um, like maybe a Viking would be worried about that. So there's a lot of, it's a, it's a good battle inside the uh, house. I, I, I like yeah. the way the battles are shot in this. Oh yeah, because definitely. Because you get a sense of what's happening inside the town, but you also get to see one-on-one confrontations. Um, and, Afterwards, uh, Eben looks a little shocked and he gets offered um, a horn of alcohol and he's like, I cannot taste the fermentation of grape or wheat. And he definitely says, wheat. He does. Um, Wheat. Wheat. I cannot taste the fermentation of grape or wheat. (laughs) That's... That's actually really good, Sarah. Yes, I did an accent. I felt, I felt like he was right here. Um, wait, I'm going to try it. I'll try it like the red-haired Viking. I can't taste the fermentation <laughs> of grape or wheat. <laughs> uh, and Herger starts laughing. He goes, honey, it's made from honey. That is a stretch. Listen. Of the laws of Islam. Islam, people who follow Islam, Muslims, can definitely drink mead. Like, I don't think that's a thing. So uh, then Eben and uh, and Olga, a uh, love story for the generations. I mean, they have so much in common. They have so many interactions. They're clearly in love with each other. I can't they imagine. They clearly know, can name one thing about one another. 
they including have... like like their name. I wonder. I wonder if they can. I wonder if they know each other's names. Listen, I wouldn't be able to tell from watching their interactions in this movie, but. Even doesn't need to know her name because, as I said while we were watching this, he's clearly the kind of person who shouts his own name <coughs> while he's, uh, shall we say, finishing being on the job. Um, but yeah, it's a love story. But which for... he would say, he would say Ahmed, not Eben. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's. It's clearly a love story for our time. I, I mean, every single time I say, I was like tears flowing down my face I'm like someday I hope to have an, as close a relationship with another human being as they do um, as Ahmed and blonde woman I, Olga Sarah her name I is Olga I am not accepting this credits only naming of this woman it's definitely I mean you I think you must have had the, uh, the shortened version because in mm-hmm. the director's cut which only I own <laughs> definitely so there's one bit where they sit down and discuss their like what they're going to do with money like it's like a real mm. relationship and they're like what are we going to do with finances when we're living together um but anyway uh, so then he just takes the fuck off <laughs> so <laughs> whoops <laughs> so values um the queen says we better go talk to the oracle um oracle obviously being another woman's name oracle is not a name oracle uh, is a title uh, so Oracle, her name is Oracle, uh, Title. is there and Queen comes down and talks to her and uh, Oracle and the Queen have this conversation which is not about a man and they're two named female characters and they have a conversation about not men. So 100% this passed the Bechdel test. Sarah doesn't need to speak right now. We just need to move on. And because It did not pass the Bechdel test. A, because Oracle is not a name and B... The conversation itself, I would say, I'll give it maybe like the minimal pass of like a two line exchange. I'll give it that because they're talking about killing another woman. (laughs) So I will give it that part, but it ultimately does not pass because Oracle is a title, not a name. Same with the mage thing. In In King Arthur Legend of the Sword, a title is not a name. So, they are distinct. So it passes the Bechdel test by a thread. Um, there's it does <laughs> not pass the Bechdel test. It does, however, because of this scene, which is the one and only moment uh, an hour after her first appearance, that Queen Weilu is, in fact, given a name. The Oracle says her name when addressing her. And it does, therefore, pass the Ipschdecker test. Because yes, it does. Weilu, bless her heart, makes it through the movie. Undeniably, this movie is the greatest Ipschdecker movie that's ever existed. And this it passes, is a stretch. Passes the Bechdel test by a threat. So, um, Do not pass the Bechdel. So she says that they need to go. Go and, uh, and hunt down the mother of the Wendell. Um, definitely not the mother of Grendel, the mother of the Wendell. And also to cut off its head, which is the number one or the the top warrior who has the horns of power. Yes. And it's great, Glenn. Wars are one in the will. Slaughter them till you rot and you will accomplish nothing. She is the will. Seek her in the earth. Which is a cool line. That is cool. And the way she's... I think this is a really cool scene. I'm not normally a big fan of of oracles in movies. I think maybe uh, The Matrix... Has burned me on this. But um, yeah, it, it is cool when they come and they actually give genuine advice. Yeah. No, like she's... Both of the oracles are like genuinely like... There's not a ton of them, but like they're helpful. 
They present relative knowledge in a only moderately cryptic way. Yeah, that's true. She does. She does. You know, it's brilliant. But she's way more helpful than the dragon in Merlin. (laughs) The dragon in Merlin. Uh, (laughs) Merlin, I know I could tell you straight out, but I'm going to give you a pile of bullshit. Um, Also, let me go and I definitely won't kill everybody. (laughs) Wink. Um, So uh, there's a cool dog in this. He's an Irish wolfhound. Looks like he's a wolfhound crossed with a red setter. It's such a cool dog. And he definitely survives, so the dog does not die. It was definitely, like, at this point that I saw the dog and I'm like, fuck it. And I just, like, I, you know, this is the one spoiler that I will look up for many movies is that I will go to doesthedogdie.com, which confirms that the dog makes it. Uh, and also that no cats die, but I guess there are no cats to begin with, uh, but that there are some horses that do not quite make it through this film. Mm, yeah, which is un- upsetting if you're a horse fan. Um yeah, which, like most of us are, because horses are beautiful. Uh, they eventually go and track the Wendell back, because they're not trying to hide the tracks, because they're obviously a strong party and don't aren't worried about the Vikings coming to attack them. So they find where they live, and they discover that there's a tunnel, and they think back, oh, find her in the ground. Mm. So they're like, right, so they've got tunnels, just caves, and they sneak into the caves. I legitimately love this scene, because... It's a cool scene. When you're watching people sneak into caves or sneak past bad guys. They never seem to take care about making noise. They're genuinely trying to be quiet. They're genuinely whispering about how do we get past these people? They're not trying to just kill people. They're not killing random people on the corners or anything like this. It's a legit stealth mission. It's a real cool stealth mission. They're getting deeper and deeper into the cave systems. There's a couple of bits where they have to swim past people. There's skulls everywhere. So many skulls. Which like is like a lot of skulls. It's super weird how many skulls they have. They, they always take the heads. They oh, but I mean they must have killed half of Norway at this stage. And then kept all of them. Everyone. <laughs> so uh they finally I mean my I will say though, my understanding was that like I feel like there's an implication that like the Wendell as a I don't know, group, have been around for centuries or something. Like, that it's not just that, like, they showed up yesterday and have yeah. collected all of these skulls. I, I, think, I think you're right. They've been at it for a long time. Um, yeah. Uh, as a group, as a, a race of people almost. And I think they... As, as furries. I think we're... we're su- cannibalistic furries. To take cannibalistic furries, yeah. That they're taking the heads, but I think maybe they're eating the brain specifically. Yeah, and then you if have that all that skull sense. left over that you yeah. don't want to go to waste, and it makes lovely decor. It does make for some rocking. I mean, what's that shop that's in American malls? Is it Hot Topic? Yeah. It's very Hot Topic. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Also that's, very Hot Topic. Check out my young person reference. Yeah. I had a brief phase of my life where I shopped at Hot Topic. Uh, by brief phase, you mean 15 to 31? No, I mean, 14 to 17. Yeah, no, Sarah's going to deny this, but she has skulls on her earrings right now. I don't have skulls on my earrings. See, I told you, she's going to deny it. I mean, and it's not a visual medium, so there's no proof. <laughs> there's no Damn proof it. of it this whatsoever, but it's definitely, it's either skulls or some sort of tassels. I don't know what it is. It's but tassels. I'm going to say skulls. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but they eventually get in there, they have to swim, and they find the Grendel's mother. She, um, Feminist icon. Uh, they start to get attacked, Gwendol, the children of the Wendell, 
and uh, they go in and fi- I call her Grendel. I mean, Wendell is definitely a different thing. And they go in and uh, Billy Whiff goes down to take her on one on one. This woman has fucking style. I love her. She's my hero. I want to be here when I grow up. Sarah, you, you look, we already know you want to be Eleanor of Aquitaine. I want to be Eleanor of Aquitaine, but also have a snake necklace. By which I mean an actual snake. She has a snake for a necklace. Uh, it's like a or scarf scarf wrapped round. Yeah. yeah, it's like... But it's just an actual snake? Yeah. It's pretty fucking cool. That's the look I think I want to go for. Yeah, I think you could pull it off, Sarah. With those yeah. skull earrings, you could pull off anything. Yeah, the um, skull earrings and, uh, and snake scarf. A snake scarf. You would be able to do it. But she also has one giant nail, which she dips into like uh, poison. Yeah, and uh, and then Bully Wolf oh, takes her. I thought it was like up. a snake fang, an actual like very large snake fang. Oh, it, it definitely could have been. Um, I'm just saying because it was attached to her nails. So, oh. it's like, so if anybody who is into athletics, like um, Flojo from the 1988 uh, Olympics, like big long curved nail, but it could be a oh. fang of something. Oh, that she was. Ho- uh, okay, I thought she was holding it. But she might, but, she might have been. It might have been just attached onto the top, but it definitely looks like it's, it's coming out of a finger. That's and even it cooler. It could be a, a fang for something else. So she dips it into some poison. Uh, Bully Whiff uh, attacks her, and she scratches him across the chest. He does behead her, which, you know, makes, makes me very sad. Um, and I hope the snake survived. Uh, and he is dying because, you know, she's poisoned him. I mean, obviously, it's the direction that it had to take. I'm real sad about it. I I liked the mother of the Wendell. I want to see a movie about her. Yeah, well, we you can watch that one with Ray Winston and uh, Angelina no. Jolie. We nope, that's s- not the one. Sexy that's not the Grendel. One. <laughs> sexy Grendel's mom. See, this is this is the see this is the Grendel's mother that I like. That like she's sexy, but she's sexy for herself. <laughs> she's not doing it for. Uh, for a Beowulf. Yeah, she's not trying to seduce Beowulf. She's just like sexy by herself with her snake scarf. Yeah, so all of the Wendell are coming to attack them because their their mother is dead now. Um, they get chased further into the cave. They come to a point where they think they can hear running water. Um, and there's a little river, but it kind of disappears into the ground. They're like, oh, crap, perfect. And then somebody's like, wait, that sounds like the cliffs. And they did hear the cliffs earlier on. It's something that was, it's called back yeah. to earlier on in the movie. And they decide to try and make a swim for it through a little cave. And as Herger says, they're going to swim. If the bad guys don't follow them, then it's probably too far to swim. And, you know, you're going to die anyway. So you might as well yep. make an attempt for it. But they managed to escape into the ocean and they've killed the Wendell's mother and they go back to a village. Yes. I will say also, Viking humor is solid the like bit where uh they're like you know they're like we're not sure if it's gonna like work out or not and the one guy and i think Herger is just like if they don't follow us i guess it's too far to swim <laughs> exactly <laughs> I, I think it's it's a funny movie so but yeah. they get back and bully with talks to king hrothgar uh do you do you want to play bully with in this sure i have only these hands i will die a pauper you will be buried as a king, and I am very old. I'm. This is me vamping now. I'm very old and have a very hot young wife. <laughs> a man might be thought wealthy if someone were to draw the story of his deeds, that they may be remembered. And I'll obviously come in as Ahmed. Such a man might be thought a wealthy indeed. 
So I guess Ahmed ibn Fadlan's going to write Beowulf. Who knew there was a secret Arabic original of Beowulf? This is something Sarah only learned through this movie. Turns yeah. out it's 100% true. Ahmed ibn Fadlan and his uh, wife Olga, love story for the ages, uh, <laughs> wrote the original version of Beowulf in Arabic. Yep, definitely wasn't written in Old English. <laughs> well, whatever. I don't know what language you were speaking. Latin <laughs> or something, right? But um, they, So they're in their, in their house and we have time for one last attack because they did not kill the guy with the horns of power and they're ready for this attack and they're, they're going to face it and they're basically going to get absolutely chewed up and destroyed. Yeah, so, yeah, because like, that was like the thing from before is that you have to kill the mother but you also have to kill like the warlord dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the others will like just go away. Uh, uh, but Beowulf is obviously slowly dying, but he manages to drag his carcass out onto the uh, floor, or right, onto the battlefield. Skin. And he is knackered. He's using his sword to stand up, but he has still enough time to, or still enough energy to kill the leader of the thing. And he cuts him to parts. Uh, Sarah has written down that he's wearing the wrong armor. It's a, Ibn Fadlan in particular actually like throws on some armor that I'm like, yeah, that shit's like 15th century. This dude looks like he's going to go fight in the Hundred Years' War. I will say it is gorgeous armor, though. It is lovely armor. Yeah, it is really like uh, it, it, when I'm watching it when I watch movies like this here and I always pay attention to that sort of stuff because that's that's what I'm interested in. Uh, it looks like something you could legitimately fight in and also looks like it's not going yeah. to make you incredibly heavy or die. He would cut an impressive figure during the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> it's really, really good. So Beowulf kills him, and even though he's half dead at this stage, he manages to scare off or uh, kill uh, the lead little bad guys, and the rest of them all run away like a bunch of wimps. Oh. There also is, by the way, this kind of like lovely moment where uh, Billy Weave has this like uh, prayer, which is an echo of the uh, the kind of bit from before, where they're all the "Lo, there do I see my father." Oh, we should do this. We should. Yeah. We should take. Do you want to be Billy Weave lines. and I'll be the chorus? So, do you want to? Do you want to start? Uh, sure, I'll start. <clears throat> Lo, there do I see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother and my sisters and my brothers. Lo, there do I see. The line of my people. Back to the beginning. Lo, they do call to me. They bid me take my place among them. In the halls of Valhalla. Where the brave. May live. Forever. Forever. I love that line. I, it's cool. It's really cool. It's so fun, cool. I don't know if that's real or not, but I, I, I would up. like to think that they did say that. I didn't look it up, but it's cool. It's, it sounds possible and they end up with uh beowulf dying and she's sitting down and he's the coolest looking chillest corpse he's ever just, just like he's just like sitting there just like real chill just like yeah just like yeah no i i saved everything yeah, yeah. look at me the dog looks sad but he's just like sitting oh. in the morning sun i think that's the most meaningful relationship in this film is beowulf and the dog he's a lovely wait what about you, you always do this, sir. You're completely ignoring the wonderful love story between Olga, the perfectly named woman, and um, Ahmed Ibn Fallon. <laughs> uh-huh. That story, that definitely involves a human woman who... Has a name. Is and according to the credits, is named Olga. Uh, so Ahmed is going home. Um, we're assuming uh, Olga is on the boat with him. No reason to think that. No reason to think that he ever talked to her again after they had sex, actually. Sarah, 
Come on. She's on the boat. Hit it and quit it, apparently. That's <laughs> <laughs> how Ahmed does it. That's exactly how he does it. Um, so, Herger, uh, Joyce, uh, they, they all, all of them have names, by the way. So, we have Herger, etc. And he's Joyce. There's another guy who's a musician. There's another guy who's an arrow man, yeah. um, etc. But I'm um, uh, the arrow man? Archer. Um, <laughs> it was the word that I was struggling for. Uh, <laughs> So Herger shouts like, we'll pray for your safe return. And Hamid's like, pray to whom? And then what does Herger say? Something about more gods than one or something? In your land, one god may be enough. But here we have need of many. I will pray to all of them for you. Do not be offended. <laughs> yeah, don't be offended. But I got to pray to all the gods. And then Hamid's just like, I'll be in your debt. As the boat's like sailing off. Goodbye. Yeah. Arab. Goodbye, Goodbye. Arab. Goodbye, Northman. <laughs> but it's nice. It's a nice goodbye. And then in the director's cut, I have, you see Olga uh, on the boat waving and she's very happy. And she's like, I love you, Ahmed. And he's like, I mm-hmm. love you, Olga. Definitely happens in the movie. I think it's more that Ahmed like kind of ducks, like Olga comes out and then Ahmed <laughs> kind of like ducks down so she doesn't see him like leaving on the boat. And then he like goes up to Herger and he's like, and she's like, hey, where's, uh, I think his name is Ahmed. I heard you saying his name. He never intro- bothered <laughs> to introduce himself. And Herger's Oh yeah, like, no, he's gone. No, Herger's like, oh, he's definitely, uh, he's definitely on the boat. Ah, <laughs> <I> got ya. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to rinse his buddy. But um, yeah, that's it. And that's the end of the movie. Oh, sorry. We, we yeah. do get to see uh, um, Ahmed writing uh, the Arabic original at the end, just signing it off. As the end of Beowulf. So, yeah, yeah, that's the end of the movie. And, um, yeah. yeah, it's perfect. It was a lot of fun. I, I genuinely enjoyed watching it. We now get to the next section. I haven't sang this in a while either. I have to get it. <clears throat> this is where we get to talk about what the movie gets right, everything, and what the movie gets wrong, almost nothing. And, uh, <laughs> and it's a section that Sarah calls, There it falls so... And that's going to be longer than the falso section here because everything, although I am looking at it now, there's an awful lot of falsos coming up here. Sarah, uh, what does the movie get wrong? So at the beginning, there's a map. Yeah. And according to this map, Baghdad is like in the middle of Russia. Uh, I do love maps, and I don't like disagree with a map, but uh, the map is clearly wrong. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't notice that. Um, <laughs> must have been just a badly bad angle you were looking at it. I actually didn't notice originally either, and then I saw that a bunch of other people had complained about it when I was poking around, and then I went and like, and then I went and like went back and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It it puts it somewhere around about where I imagine uh Volgograd would be now, which is yep. like slap bang in the middle of it like. Yep. Oh, it's weird. So, uh pretty distant from its actual location in what is now Iraq. Mhm. Um Unfortunately, also, the conflict that sparks the beautiful friendship between Ahmed ibn Fadlan and the Vikings would have been a bit challenging because uh, it is sparked by the attack of the Tatars, a group who are not known for being raiders in the Volga region until the 13th century. These guys just got a bit of a head start. If there was anybody who was a raider at this point, it probably would have, in fact, been the Vikings. 
Although they were there mostly for trade, to be fair. <laughs> um, and again, just for people listening, I'm going to pretend like I'm disagreeing with Sarah. But yeah, she's 100% right in all of these. But she doesn't know this. I'm editing it in afterwards. Sarah, I don't know. I think you're, I think you're, you're wrong about that. I, I think uh, all of those tartars, those vulgar tartars, were probably around uh, all the time. Well, they are probably mostly descendants of people who would have been there at the time. Those people were the Volga Bulgars who had formed a kingdom and enjoyed a very cordial relationship with the Muslim ambassadors whom they had invited, in part because they all wanted to convert to Islam. I will never not find you saying Volga Bulgars. <laughs> Volga Bulgars. <laughs> the Volga Bulgars is the funniest thing that we've come across in this movie. I keep trying to not say the Volga Bulgars. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Um, it's hard. We have already discussed the armor issue, which, well, it's an awkward mishmash between like a kind of variety of stuff from the 14th to the 16th century. And definitely none of it would have been even the slightest bit familiar to a Viking or Arab of the 10th century, which is when this movie definitely takes place. Yeah. Um, even I can't defend this one. The, the, the armor is such a weird uh, mix of well basically five to six centuries later yeah. stuff that definitely wouldn't be around i do think it looks wonderful but there are also some little details here and there that they got right which i appreciated uh so first of all he has his sword made into so you made the argument that it ultimately does look more like a cutlass than a scimitar yeah, it does, but definitely. It, but it's meant to be a it's scimitar. It's meant to be a scimitar. And if we take them on that point, then the scimitar, although it does become more popular later in the 14th and 15th centuries, it is attested in the by the 9th century in the Abbasid Caliphate, which is where Ahmed ibn Fadlan would have been from. So, hmm. One thing I will say, I'll stick in a falsehood here. You can't take a, a sword, a broadsword, and then just grind away at the edges... <laughs> To make another sword which is structurally sound. Yeah. Not not surprising, but that is not how swords work. It does look super cool, though. It does. Um, and, and it does make sense that that would have been the sword that he might have wanted, even though the way in which it is made is not possible. Yeah, and he does use it very effectively. After that point, he, yeah. he, at, he at very least holds his own in all the sword fights he's in. Um one thing I will say about this, and this is me admitting something, I tried to buy one of those swords um, for quite a lot of money uh, in 2006, <laughs> and I got outbid on it, um, and I was very disappointed. But um, yeah, it came up for auction in, uh, in, in an auction house in Dublin, and um, I went after it and couldn't get it, but uh, yeah. Maybe one day. Hmm. Uh, Mead would have indeed been drunk by a 10th century Norseman and is mentioned in Beowulf, the actual text on that is the loose inspiration for many of the details in this film. I can see that there are some similarities. Mm -hmm. I would say, okay, so Viking ship burials, this is literally exactly the best possible context in which to put the Viking ship burials with the fire and everything. Yeah, because our best account of that is from the writings of Ahmed ibn Fadlan, who is a real person who I will talk about in more detail oh, shortly. Is that a spoiler as to who we're going to spoiler talk about? Spoiler for the next segment, yeah. 
So yeah, so this is exactly where it belongs is precisely literally at the moment in this, the time and place that it is put in this movie. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well yeah. done, Turtle yeah. Warrior. Because um, that's actually the thing with them in general is that we're not always sure to what extent those details that he sees are necessarily always quite the same as uh, the Vikings, as the ones practiced by the Vikings who were basically at that point just in, say, Norway or England or various other places um, because the Vikings that were in Bruce had been kind of like been there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's potentially some debate about whether it's actually the Vikings, but most people think they're the Vikings, yeah. I think is my impression. Um but yeah, so it belongs there. And also the Viking Cirrus, that there's a couple of these like Cirrus oracle figures. And the Vikings did indeed have some highly respected women seers who they believe to have various supernatural powers. And there have been some graves discovered in Denmark and Sweden that uh, are thought by some to be graves belonging to these Cirruses that include objects like amulets, bird bones, some wands and staffs, and seeds that belong to hallucinogenic or otherwise mind-altering substances, including henbane and cannabis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That could just be my, my bedroom up there. Um, <coughs> what they, when you say bird bones, are, would these have been ones that had runes scratched on them that they then threw, and then whichever runes kind of showed up almost like dice? Or was it evidence that they slaughtered chickens? It was closer to the former. Um, I don't think they all necessarily have runes on them, but they would mm. have like thrown them onto the ground and then the pattern in which they fell yeah. would have been symbolically significant. I have, uh, I've always found that area of, um, of predicting the future genuinely fascinating. Yeah. Because it seems like the most esoteric thing. Oh, yeah. those two crossed. And that means it's going to be a death. And like, if you throw out a set of bones, the chances of two of them crossing are very high. I mean, then again, somebody's I, probably going to die. That's true. Yeah, if you're in a Viking world, it's probably mm-hmm. it's probably you know better than even odds somebody's dying in the next day or so. No, the bigger thing I would say that I really liked about how this movie depicts the medieval world on a kind of broader, more meta sense is that it does have a lot of emphasis on this moment of intercultural interaction and contact which is, I would say, ultimately not a hostile one, but also one that is often riddled by misunderstandings about one another, that's riddled, that ha- that is involved some kind of, like, light mockery of one another, but that, you know, is ultimately a kind of working relationship that is in many ways positive. And I think this idea that there are people who don't have the kind of modern ideas of tolerance, but that are able to kind of work with one another, they're very much aware of their differences and sometimes mock their differences, but that they are able to still, you know, continue to interact on a relatively friendly basis. I think that Mm -hmm. actually is probably pretty true to what a lot of intercultural interactions might have looked like in the medieval world. Yeah, it's it's genuinely interesting to see that happening. It's also... For me, uh, in particular, just to, to sit down and watch a movie that isn't presented in any way, shape, or form, anything to do with Christianity. Yeah, it, it just doesn't. It doesn't it's exist. Just totally in the movie. irrelevant. It's irrelevant right. in the movie. Um, when you take something like the physician that we watched, where he was a Christian pretending to be Jewish to fit into his own world, and it felt really forced. Right, like, why did we need to have this be through the lens of a Christian? Why couldn't it just be like some Jewish dude who became a doctor? Yeah, it was good to see a movie that that doesn't have somebody at at any stage going, oh my God, 
Oh, for the love of Jesus, just thrown in for no reason. It's the 10th century. Not everybody's Christian. The Vikings are very much aware of and interested in Islam. You were saying that you think this is somehow connected to Beowulf? Yes. So there's a couple of other things that I wanted to note that I think it got kind of a little, something's right, something's wrong. And one of that is the Beowulf connection. So uh, this is a, I guess I would say, loose retelling of the Beowulf saga, which is uh, known for being one of the, I guess, uh, the kind of, one of the kind of most famous Old English epic poems. So uh, in the original, um, the kind of big difference is that, so Beowulf shows up uh, in the original, he first kills Grendel, who is only like one creature, and then Grendel's mother. And also he survives both of these battles long enough to uh, die many years later to actually become a king himself and uh, dies later in a battle against the kind of final major creature, which is a dragon. So dragons do show up finally, eventually in real Beowulf. So cool dragons. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it is a perfectly legitimate choice to like tell the story that is inspired by Beowulf, but, you know, different in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to, but I do want to note a couple of like quick things. So first of all, I think it's cool that um, they emphasize kind of quietly that uh, Bullyweef is very good at swimming. And this is canonical. There is a whole bit where the king's jerk son starts being like, oh, I heard that you kept like bragging about how good you were at swimming. And then you like challenge somebody to like a swim contest and you lost. And Beowulf is like, no, that happened, but I won. <laughs> way, to, way to be humble, Beowulf. I know, right? This is like Beowulf is like the least humble person ever. But I think community wasn't really like a value in this context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does in fact uh, uh, have to swim in order to get to the underwater lair of Grendel's mother. Sexy Grendel's mother. Sexy when Grendel's you, mother. When you watch that version of the movie. <laughs> um, there is an interesting choice, I think, made in this movie to make Billy Weef in some ways the least charismatic person. That, what Sarah has written in her notes <laughs> is interesting choice made to make Billy Weef really fucking boring. <laughs> now, I should obviously delete that and write down interesting choice made to make Billy Weef stoic. Uh, which is what I imagined they were going for. But yeah, yeah, he's the least interesting of all of the characters. Yeah, I mean, except for like the guys whose names you can't quite remember who are just like miscellaneous Viking. Well, miscellaneous Vikings all at least insult women at some stage. True. But doesn't Bully Weave too? No, Bully Weave, he's, he's respectful of women. Mm, okay. That's why Good he doesn't him. make a move on the queen, mm. even though she's definitely giving him the Olga eyes, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, she's like 30 and her husband's like 90. He is very, very old. And I genuinely thought that was his daughter. Oh, my God. (laughs) 22 times I've probably seen this movie. (sighs) Um, The thing that obviously makes less sense is Beowulf is famously an old English text. So it is not super likely that there's like an Arabic original of Beowulf that then made its way over in time to then be translated into Old English and appear in our first version, our first uh, version that we have written of Beowulf, that which dates to the late 10th, early 11th century. Unlikely, but not impossible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can't say how it would have happened, but you know, who knows? Um, however, I will say the timing in general is potentially also kind of questionable, although that kind of depends on who you talk to. So, uh, Ibn Fadlan and this story in general is clearly in about the kind of early to mid 10th century. 
the earliest Beowulf manuscript does date from after that, so the kind of late 10th into 11th century. But there are a number of scholars who do believe, and this used to be the 100% standard idea, and then now there's kind of some people who think that it's later, some people who think that it's earlier. But there are a number of scholars who think that it is an 8th or 9th century um, kind of original text, or that it would have had a kind of oral form at that point and then been later written down. But that I would say a decent amount of scholars do think that it is earlier quite a bit than the 10th century. And as well that um, if you read Beowulf, it feels very much rooted in the kind of cultural norms and ideologies of, uh, you know, of England at this time uh, or kind of Scandinavia at this time, which is very closely connected in a lot of ways to England. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it doesn't feel like the kind of thing that would be written by somebody from the, from uh, the you know, British from Peninsula. The yeah. Caliphate. Hmm. Um, yeah, but it does make sense that it's that like I get why they're going. It's like he's a writer. They established that at the beginning, yeah. and it's like, oh, we'll stick him in and say he's a writer at the end. But yeah, it, it yeah, it's like pr- a little probably, silly, but like, he wrote yeah. Beowulf. But huh. it's still fun. It's still, yeah, it's still fun. fun little thing. It's fun. Um, so then the other thing that I would say there's a, kind of a bit it gets right and a bit it gets wrong is the actual history of Ahmad ibn Fadlan's embassy to the Volga Bulgars, which leads into our next segment. The who, Sarah? Are you saying the Volga Bulgars? <laughs> I'm trying not to. I'm trying so hard. These Volga Bulgars. <laughs> Volga Bulgars. <laughs> Would you say that uh, he had an actual embassy yes. and therefore that this could be somebody who was a real person yes. in real life? I would be saying that. It's almost like we should be in the Historia et Veritas about Ahmed ibn Fadlan. So, first of all, there is no reason to think that he was exiled because he had an affair with a married woman. Although we do know relatively little about his origins, but that is definitely something that they completely made up. There is every reason to think that this is just like his job, that he is a diplomat. Mm -hmm. So uh, he is a part of this embassy. He's not the sole ambassador, but the Volga Bulgars wrote to the Abbasid Caliph requesting an embassy that ideally is going to both provide religious instruction in Islam for them. They have expressed interest in converting to Islam and help to develop a military alliance between the Bulgars and the much more powerful Abbasid Caliphate, which in turn would have had probably some kind of trade benefits in addition to the, you know, genuinely i imagine very real interest in basically converting these people this kind of these kind of enthusiastic people to islam so they uh the uh, caliph al-muqtadir sends a uh, pretty large embassy which so would have definitely included multiple people and ibn fadlan was probably included uh, he in fact was not a uh, warrior he was included precisely because of his religious knowledge um and he really seems to have been an expert in islamic jurisprudence so, uh, you know, he has connections, uh, he's important at court, but then he's also somebody who really could have contributed to providing religious instruction for the Volga Bulgars. Mm. However, he and his embassy are important not just because, uh, um, you know, he was this kind of, there's this kind of interesting story about this group of people who wanted to convert to Islam and got the, and, you know, got these ambassadors in. But Ibn Fadlan is especially important, not because he's in fact really the leader of this embassy, but because he wrote a lot of things down. 
And so he wrote this account of his travels, which is a valuable source for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, it, you know, if you're interested in either this region or the Islamic East, if you're interested in medieval travel and encounters between people of different faiths and cultures, uh, or if you are interested in the Vikings slash Norsemen. Um, and that is because Ibn Fadlan recounts his meeting with a group of traders who had set up camp along the Volga River. So he refers to this, pe- this group of people as the Rus, but based on a kind of combination of the description and what we know about the Norsemen who were in the region at this time, um, they are generally assumed by most people to be Norsemen, in fact. The spitting definitely comes from this text. Oh, don't, yeses. Yes. Mm. So. Sarah told me she's going to, to read this out and, okay. Yeah. So. First of all, just quick note that he does definitely think the Vikings are super sexy. His initial description of them is, I have never seen bodies as perfect as theirs. But the sexiness mm-hmm. is... Come over <laughs> here, Ahmed. He, he, he's never seen you. Ultimately, I think the sexiness is a little diminished by some of their habits. <clears throat> as he says, they are the filthiest of all God's creatures. They have no modesty when it comes to defecating or urinating, and do not wash themselves when intercourse puts them in a state of ritual impurity. They do not even wash their hands after eating. Indeed, they are like roaming asses. They arrive, moor their boats by the Etil, and build large wooden houses on its banks. They share a house in groups of ten and twenty, sometimes more, sometimes fewer. Each reclines on a couch. They are accompanied by beautiful female slaves for trade with the merchants. They have intercourse with their female slaves in full view of their companions. Sometimes they gather in a group and do this in front of each other. A merchant may come in to buy a female slave and stumble upon the owner having intercourse. The roost does not leave her alone until he has satisfied his urge. They must wash their faces and their heads each day with the filthiest and most polluted water you can imagine. Let me explain. Every morning, a female slave brings a large basin full of water and hands it to her master. He washes his hands, face, and hair in the water. Then he dips the comb in the water and combs his hair. Then he blows his nose and spits in the water. Or sorry, spits in the basin. He is prepared to do any filthy, impure act in the water. When he is finished, the female slave carries the basin to the man next to him, who performs the same routine as his comrade. She carries it from one man to the next and goes around to everyone in the house. Every man blows his nose and spits in the basin and then washes his face and hair. It's disgusting. This is a real thing, and Ahmed Ibn Fadlan, the real person, was indeed genuinely, truly disgusted by this. <laughs> With good reason. Well, of course you would be. It's, oh, it's disgusting. Uh, He also claims to have witnessed one of these famous Viking funerals and uh, uh, describes this in detail. He refers indeed to uh, the fact that um, there is this, uh, it actually is not his wife, according to this description, it's a slave woman. So uh, they say that when a man is rich, they collect his possessions and divide them to three portions. One third goes to his household, one third is spent on funeral garments, and one third is spent on the alcohol they drink on they drink the day this female slave kills herself and is cremated with her master. They are addicted wow. to alcohol. They drink it day and night. Mm. Sometimes one of them dies cup in hand. When the chieftain <laughs> dies, the members of his household ask his female and male slaves, who will die with him? One answers, I will. 
At this point, the words become binding. There is no turning back. It is not even an option. It is usually the female slaves who offer. And it goes on, uh, refers, in fact, to there is this kind of seeress involved, an aged woman whom they called the angel of death. And uh, then eventually kind of goes on to explain in quite in further detail that uh, they arrive, they kind of undress him, uh, they give him some alcohol to drink in the future, and uh, finally carry him into the ship, uh, surround him with a bunch of food. They also cut a dog in two and throw it on the boat. So uh, the real account of Ahmad ibn Fadlan does not pass on doesthedogdie.com. They also cut up some cows and chickens. Then finally, there is the female slave who basically gets like raped by every other dude who's friends with this dude, uh, who then says, tell your master that I have done this out of love for you. And finally, they bring her into uh, the, it says, to an object they built resembled a doorframe. She stood on the hands of the men and rose like the sun above the doorframe. She uttered some words and they brought her down. They lifted her up a second time and she did what she had done before. Uh, they lowered her and lifted her a third time. She did what she had done the last two times. Then they handed her a hen. She cuts the head off. Oh, and then, okay, wait, wait. And so they pick up the hen and threw her onto the boat. I quizzed the interpreter about her actions. And she said, the first time they lifted her up, she said, look, I see my father and mother. The second time she said, mm. look, I see all my dead kindred seated. The third time she said, look, I see my master seated in the garden. The garden is beautiful and dark green. He is with his men and retainers. He summons me. Go to him. So then she finally goes to the boat. She gets put on the boat. There's some more rape. And then the deceased's nearest male relative comes forward. He picks up a piece of wood and set it alight. He is completely naked. He walked backwards, the nape of his neck toward the boat, his face toward the people. He had the ignited piece of wood in one hand and had his other hand on his anus. He set fire to the wooden structure <laughs> under the boat. <laughs> the people came forward with sticks and firewood. They each carried a lighted stick that they threw on top of the wood. The wood caught fire, then the boat, the yurt, the dead man, the female slave, and everything else on board caught fire. A fearsome wind picked up. The flames grew higher and higher and blazed fiercely. So this is his personal experience that he kind of had heard they did this, basically. And then he's like, you know, basically, let me know when somebody important dies. I want to come see it. And uh, this is his eyewitness account of this experience. I, I know I shouldn't. I laugh really loud at a bit. But you're after describing a poor woman who was raped multiple times and died yep. from burning. But you did also say that the guy was holding a firing brand and this is in his yep. other hand. So it's hard not to laugh. Um but yeah, that's, oh, I feel like even hearing that, you're like, oh my God. Um, Vikings are way less cool than they were 10 minutes ago. Right. Um, they spit in bowls and yeah. burn women. Yeah, well, the spitting in bowls is just disgusting and whatever. But the other stuff is, yeah, yeah it's hideous. <sighs> yeah, so... That is, uh, I actually highly recommend if anyone, you know, finds this interesting to uh, actually read Ibn Fadlan's account. If you basically just kind of Google him, it's his, you know, account of his uh, embassy to the Volga Bulgars. Um, yeah, it sounds, <laughs> Volga Bulgars. It sounds, it sounds genuinely interesting. I, I'd never, I knew he was a real person or based on a real person. I didn't realize that you could still find his accounts. So I may, uh, I might yeah, try and check Yeah, it's really interesting. Out. It's actually also relatively short. Uh, I mean, so the, PDF that I have um, is, uh, I think, comes to about 70 or so pages, but it's actually half that because it's a double-facing English-Arabic text. 
So it's like only like 35 mm-hmm. pages in English. So, so sir, that's what they got right, what they got wrong, and that's who the uh, the uh, historic story it veritas is, which is Hakmid uh, ibn Fadlan. So that means we've got two last sections. We get to find out what sort of movie you would make, or what sort of movie I would make. I'll give you a hint, people. There's not going to be that much of a difference. Uh, in a section we call Fabula Nostra. Sarah, what would you do with this movie? And before I get in, I haven't looked at who you're casting. 100% Sarah, you're going to say Alexander City. I am. <laughs> of course you are. I actually tried to find somebody else because I've cast him a lot. Um, I just, yeah, because he's a great actor. He's a great actor. There's also a couple of th- people that I'm going to admit I thought might actually be um, of a of kind of Arab background and that could be good, and then it turns out they're totally not. They mm. just have played Arabs in movies, and I kind of wanted to have like an actual person who was of like semi Middle Eastern descent at some point. So um, yeah, so I'm going for Alexander Siddiq as my Ahmed ibn Fadlan, but. Um, my thought is that inspired by this, um, that I ended up then doing something fairly different that would be, I guess I would say, a little bit more of a kind of more sort of direct um, account in some ways of his, of Ahmed ibn Fadlan's experiences with his time with both the Volga Bulgars and, <laughs> sorry, I just can't quit saying the Volga Bulgars. <laughs> Uh, his time with the Volga Bulgars <laughs> and uh, with these uh, Norsemen that are also present in the region. So um, I think it could be cool to have some kind of interest in the political maneuvering that's happening in terms of how the Volga Bulgars are responding to the arrival of this embassy, as well as then kind of dealing with uh, these kind of themes of intercultural interaction that would in fact have three cultures, none of which actually are going to be really Christian. Mm-hmm. So, um, so as I said, Alexander Siddig for Ahmed ibn Fadlan. For uh, the Volga Bulgar king at this time, who was named Almish Iltabar, uh, I decided to cast Arnold Voslu, a.k.a. the mummy. So, the mummy himself, the mummy? Uh-huh. Ah, yeah. I like Arnold Voslu. I'm, I'm wondering now about how old he would be, because he's got to be pretty old. But I could definitely see Arnold Vuslu in this. Yeah, so he's going to be the king of the Volga Bulgars. Ooh, the Volga Bulgars. <laughs> so the Volga Bulgar himself, Arnold Vuslu. Or he could be the Volga Burger King. The Burger Burger. <laughs> Arnold Vuslu, the, the Volga Burger King. Um, his wife will definitely have a name. I'm not going to try and come up with a Bulgar name. I'm just not going to do that personally. <laughs> this is not a culture I'm that familiar with, to be honest. Uh, but I'm going to cast as his wife, Michelle Fairley, especially because they have a real deep connection because both of them played terrorists on 24. That's Kit and Stark? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So that's where most people uh, would in fact Jones. know her from. But before yeah. that, she was terrorist on 24. She was yeah. uh, in season eight or yeah. Die, another, Die Another Day. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, version, the yeah. last one or the last like mm. normal season that Jack Bauer was in. Because I love 24. Everybody. So good. Everyone should watch 24. I also have decided, and this is my piece of casting that is basically just like me making a joke to myself, that I will have Vikings. 
I would mm-hmm. like to have my Vikings played by Stellan Skarsgård and all four of his sons who are apparently actors now, Alexander, Gustav, Bill, and Walter. Um, Gustav and Walter, I cannot tell you anything about. Me neither. <laughs> Alexander is Tarzan. And has experience playing a Viking uh, in True Blood, where he is a Viking vampire. He's a Viking vampire. And Bill is Pennywise. Uh-huh. He can play, Exactly. He can be the dick Viking. <laughs> He's the dick Viking. His brother Alexander is the hot Viking. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Alexander, what do you do? Put your shirt back on. Well, I didn't want to have any problems with the uh, the accuracy of the armor in this one, so I'm not going to wear any. <laughs> exactly. Stellan Scar and Stellan Skarsgård is the Viking who's probably going to die in the movie and then have a Viking funeral. Also, something just occurred to me. Sarah F. Decker, are you a True Blood fan? I have a... I hate <gasps> watched a lot of True Blood. Okay, I genuinely liked season one of True Blood, and then... I like True Blood increasingly less, but still watched all of it, and then kind She's of hated true, myself for it. True Blood truther, that's what she is, she no, loves it. Uh, <laughs> the one thing I like about True Blood is the season one idea that vampires sure are kind of scary, but the scariest thing is actually like southern racists. Mm. I appreciated uh, that. I've... Uh... I've only ever seen like one half episode of True Blood. I'm sure it's something I, it's one of those things where I'm 100% certain if I sat down to watch it, I'd probably enjoy. It's arguably not good, but it's entertaining. <laughs> Who would you cast as a cool Viking series stroke the Angel of Death? I'm going to cast Tilda Swinton because she's weird looking, but also very talented. <laughs> <laughs> she's weird looking. Um, and she could pass for a Viking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sarah, and you're going to turn this into. Uh, HBO miniseries type thing? Yeah, because I'm thinking like, uh, yeah, because I'm thinking that this would really be a kind of a larger sort of exploration of his, of this kind of, the kind of progress of this embassy. So I think it would work a little better as a kind of like slow burn, almost like medieval political thriller. Yeah, I can, I can dig it. I can see. Yeah, so I think that would maybe work better as an HBO miniseries in terms of format. Yeah, I would watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, so I so suppose I have to... So this is, this, all right, this is a very difficult question for me, right? Is because the question is, how would I make a better movie version of the Thirteenth Warrior? And the answer is, well, that doesn't exist. But I would say this, right? It's based on a book called Eaters of the Dead, mm-hmm. and Eaters of the Dead doesn't really have this. It doesn't have the uh, Ahmed Ibn Fahlan link, right? Or it's not as pronounced. There is a Thirteenth Warrior. That is involved in the book, and there is an outsider going thing, but it's much more spent with the Vikings. So I'm going to imagine that they're making the same movie, mm-hmm. but they're going to stick closer to the book. Now, loads of people, as always happens when people are talking about books, they go, oh, the book is so much better. The book version of this is not better than The Thirteenth Warrior. Even if you're not a fan of The Thirteenth Warrior, the book isn't particularly great, right? <laughs> But it is a story about cannibals and it focuses mm. a lot on cannibals and how uh, cannibals go crazy because of the blood types and when you're eating human blood that there's certain things that you get into your system which cause you to go insane, which is what leads you to be more insane, blah, blah, blah. And, and then it's you want to eat more people. And you want to eat more people. And their entrails. Int- <laughs> exactly. And use their skulls as your household decor. So I can see that happening, right? So 
What I would say is I would like to see a newer version of this movie with more of the Viking stuff added into it, but still keep the bit that they added for the movie, which is Ahmed Ibn Fadlan. So I'm going to cast Shazad Latif. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he's a British actor of Middle Eastern descent. Um, he's famous for being... right. I'm trying to think what uh, people who are listening to this will have seen him in. So if you've ever seen Toast of London, which is a comedy show starring Matt Berry, he's Clem Fandango, uh, the, you know, the bad guy, his big rival um, in the thing. He's also, if you watch the new uh, Star Trek Discovery, he is the uh, Klingon turned human in it. Hmm. Uh, and he's a brilliant actor. I was going to cast Riz Ahmed, mm-hmm. but then I thought maybe like yeah, everyone would expect you to cast him. That was the person. So I didn't cast him because he's too young for what I wanted. Exactly. Yeah. So Shazad Latif is like close to the same age as him, but young enough to be, or sorry, old enough to actually look like he's he's had a life. Also, right. I think he's a I think he's a better actor. Hmm. So that's just for me. And he can do comedy, whatever. Um, as for the Vikings. I would just randomly cast a bunch of Norwegian actors. <laughs> just have them have Norwegian accents. Just have them talk the way they are. Uh, for Beowulf, for the equivalent of Beowulf, uh, I'm going to cast uh, Nicholas Coster Waldo mm. because I think he could do an interesting version of Beowulf. So the exact same thing that's done in this movie, just have him be super handsome and charismatic. And mm. it's just one thing Nicholas Coster Waldo can do. It's yeah. be super charismatic. It'd be handsome. nice to have a and charismatic then, Beowulf. <laughs> Exactly. And then just basically do the movie that we've got, but do it for modern thing. Now, when we come around to talking about our uh, Estimadios, um, I'll explain why I think this movie was overlooked a lot. And I think a remake of it with a proper studio behind it and mm-hmm. not all of the baggage that came with it, I genuinely think would be a success because this hits all the buttons for me. Mm-hmm. I understand why it doesn't hit all the buttons for other people. I genuinely don't think that anybody who watches this movie with an open mind can watch it and not be semi-entertained. That's fair. Um, and I think if they made a newer version of it, almost identical movie, just with newer, younger, hipper, in the public eye actors mm-hmm. right now, and then say, right, this is the movie that we're going to make. This is what it's going to be. It's yeah. going to be almost the same story. We'll put in a little bit more of the horror element that comes from the book. Mm-hmm but keep the same basic story as this. I think it could genuinely be a huge success if mm. if it has everything going for it. So, yeah. Would you keep the spitball scene? Oh, 100%, because that's the kind of scene where people look at it and go, oh. Ugh. I would also um, have the spitball scene in my version. All right, so Sarah, uh, let's get to Estimatio, um, which is our last section where we give it a rating out of five. Estimatio. Ah, oh, I've missed doing that. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure your listeners have not. Um, Sarah, what would you give this out of rating from zero to five? Zero being the worst movie you've ever seen and five being the 13th Warrior. So I genuinely enjoyed this movie. I found it really entertaining. I think a lot of things about the kind of staging and filming were actually quite well done. And I think that there are ways in which it did a good job of representing intercultural interaction in the medieval world and of uh, including these elements that are actually drawn from Ibn Fadlan's writing, uh, kind of incorporating these Beowulf elements. 
thought it was a really kind of fun, interesting movie that was an interesting depiction of the medieval world. Now, the issue is, for a movie for me to get a five, I either have to have a very deep personal connection to it, which (laughs) I know you do, but this is the first time I've seen it, or um, it has to like really not have any notes that I find very jarring from a historical accuracy perspective. And uh, for me, this definitely kind of lost some points in terms of, you know, things like the kind of material culture of it, things like the armor, um, uh, things like that map, things like, come on, you couldn't have just like found some group that isn't the Tatars that like kind of made sense or does not have that scene. You could just have gone in to like talk to them because they were hanging out by the river and then the whole and then like the same thing could have happened. It would have been fine. Uh, like, not that that wasn't a good scene that had, you know, that, like, battle at the beginning, but, like, you technically don't actually even need it for the plot. Mm-hmm. So, I think that there are things that it could have done better on historical accuracy. And that, to me, knocks it to a four. And because I'm an angry feminist, <laughs> I ultimately am going to have to knock this movie down to a three for the fact that there are there are some women only one of them is named in the movie because Oracle is not a name, it's a title. And Mother of the Wendell is also not a name, it is a title, as awesome and, as she is. And Olga. <laughs> Olga does not have a name. In that we, we have discussed it as canon on this podcast that the name does not count unless mentioned in the film. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Meaning that only Queen Weilu counts as being a named woman. She is... Honestly, not that essential to the plot. I mean, none of the women, well, certainly none of the women with names are actually really that essential to the plot. The women who actually matter to the plot are, I guess, Grendel's mother and the Cirruses who don't have names. Um, But Olga is basically this like awkward shoehorned, like, let's throw a woman in here so that the main character has somebody to have sex with. Waylo is clearly just kind of there because she's in Beowulf and, but you know, doesn't like she's, it's a kind of thing where like she does a little bit more than she does in Beowulf, but she really doesn't do that much. And she's really not that essential to the plot. And there's also just like this whole, like, my God, just everybody constantly insulting women and his whole thing about like this woman who belonged to another man. Like the, the gender politics of this movie are like not amazing in this particular like 1990s way. And that does, unfortunately, knock it down for me. So I'm giving it a three out of five. Yeah, and uh, like I'll joke about it and I'll, I'll laugh, haha. But I, I understand exactly what Sarah's saying. Um, right. I'm going to give this a five out of five, right? Uh, I understand that there are problems with the movie. There are clearly problems with the movie. But I'm coming at this from somebody who, in 2000, picked up a DVD in a bargain bucket in a supermarket had knew nothing about the movie i had read the book uh i didn't realize this was an adaptation on the book until i'd put it in and it hit play all i saw on the front cover was a guy with a sword and i went oh a guy with a sword <laughs> looking at this movie because i don't even think it was released in the cinema over here so i threw it on uh i distinctly remember when it was i remember it was about 12 o'clock at night i was after coming back from the pub, I was like, I'll throw this shade on. It's going to be grand. And I found every single part of it entertaining. As I said earlier in, in the, uh, the podcast, I, this just hits all the buttons for me. Mm-hmm. It's got action. It's got comedy. It's got 
camaraderie between bros basically um the, like viking bros but they're still bros yeah. um uh people from other cultures trying to fit in um i think it's wonderful considering that i was watching this in 2000 i've i've watched it pretty much every year since 2000 in fact i've definitely watched it every year <laughs> since 2000 um and it's wonderful to watch a movie where the main character even though he is played by a spanish actor is a muslim um, he's not shown yeah. to be duplicitous or evil yeah. in any way. He's the hero of the movie. Like yeah. he is a wide-eyed innocent in some ways, which is not like if you take back to 99, 2000, 2000, 2001 and post 2001 in particular, you weren't getting any nuanced takes on right. people from the Muslim culture. That's true. So for something like this to come out at the time, it's it's so completely different. So you're watching a guy who the main character in this is a poet, a writer, um, a guy who was basically uh, kicked out of his kingdom for you know being a bit of a playboy. But it's not seen as a good thing. It's clearly it was a bad thing, and he got removed from his station of office and sent to the wilds. Uh, he's not big. He's not strong, um, and yet he's not the same religion as the Vikings. They start by making jokes about his horse. They start by making jokes about his sword. They start by making jokes about his mother. By the time they're finished, they're all semi-respectful of his religion. Yeah. The the leader of the Vikings wants to learn more about Muhammad. Mm -hmm. They so it's like it's such a refreshing take. Yeah. To see an othered person who just think of all the movies we've watched set in this time period in particular, but think of all the movies we watched it, like. The, the the treatment of him in comparison to the treatment of uh in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, the treatment of the Moor character, mm -hmm. where everyone's just looking at him, it's like, it's just weird, what the hell is this? Like who is this guy? Uh making jokes about him. Like whereas in this, he's like, yeah, they laugh at him when they don't realise he can understand their language. By the time he's able to talk to them, they're no longer laughing at him. They're making jokes with him. Yeah. Like they're they're having fun and he's accepted into the thing. He's not seen as weak. Whereas it's very hard to think of any Hollywood movies where somebody who is a Muslim isn't seen as the butt of the joke or isn't mm -hmm. seen as like Or a terrorist. Yeah, or a terrorist. Exactly. <laughs> the sheer number of movies where they they will have like a Muslim character, but he'll have to have like a funny joke about what he's eating. Or right. something will get stolen and automatically there'll be suspicion on this character you, you you don't know anything about him but there's the suspicion is on them yeah like even if it's not them the suspicion fell on them in the first place just so you get the very heavy-handed learning moment of oh not all muslim people are bad and it feels heavy-handed yeah Whereas this in 2000 is or the movie was made in 1999 is straight in with yeah he's from a different culture they're from a different culture but it's not focused on as something very different now the reason I think this movie got boned is it's directed by John McTiernan. John McTiernan, who made uh, Die Hard mm -hmm. and uh, The Thomas Crown Affair in 1998, Thomas Crown Affair. Absolutely fantastic, brilliant movie. I recommend that to everybody. Um, this is the movie where he spent $160 million to make it. Uh -huh. It only made $60 million in the worldwide box office, which Ooh. makes it officially the biggest flop of all time. Oh, no. Right? But it also was a movie that didn't cost 160 million. This is the movie where John McTiernan and all his buddies uh, 
elicited some serious tax evasion and misappropriation of funds. Oh, shit. So it's for the making of The 13th Warrior that John McTiernan went to prison, right? Ah. <laughs> and because of this... This movie sent because, a dude to prison. Exactly. Because of $160 million cost, almost every single review that you will find of this is short, to the point, and the point that they're making is this movie cost 160 million. How can this movie cost 160 million? This is a crazy that a movie would cost 160 million. What a waste of money. Yeah. Who would spend 160 million on a movie? Absolutely everything. Roger Ebert's review, he mentions the 160 million budget 15 times in mm -hmm. a one and a half page review, right? Uh, my ma movie magazine of choice is Empire, or always was Empire. Uh, the reason I completely skipped this is because it got a one-star review from Empire. Mm. And they just said, 160 million, not well spent, not worth your time. Its original review was one column, like like literally two inches on the corner of a column. Um, so somebody who was big into reading Empire completely skipped over it. Mm -hmm. So the movie itself was completely lost. Yes, there are clear issues with the fact that women don't really have much agency in the movie. When you listen to Sarah's account of what Ahmed Ibn Fahlan actually said about the Vikings, and then what you get in the movie, I think the movie has covered over a lot of the cracks of what actually happened. Right. Because, yeah. you know, they're trying to go with accuracy or semi-accuracy, but they also shied away from the fact that, you know what, we don't have to show somebody getting ripped. We right. don't have to show and I do appreciate against women. that. I mean, and so that yeah, yeah. So this, that's what we're getting. So to me, it's not necessarily a negative. If we were making this movie now, obviously, I think we could have a female warrior in the Vikings. You, you know, because it's 2019, right? And that's what yeah, we're doing. and I mean, the Vikings did certainly have. I mean, the Viking women. I think you certainly, you know, that are actually like other Vikings and are, you know, the wives of other Viking warriors. Uh, there's some debate about the extent to which they actually were necessarily warriors themselves, but there were certainly women who are. Um, like there's, but there are certainly like women who are, you know, going with the Vikings and are integral and in kind of setting up settlements and things like that. And I think that, you know, those would be interesting people to feature. Uh, and actually, although it's questionable if there was quite such a concept as, say, a woman warrior, there is evidence that the Vikings had a concept of basically, uh, basically of gender fluidity. And of there mm -hmm. being people who were like not considered actually either male or female, so that there were essentially people who were. Uh, as basically assigned female at birth non-binary um, yeah. warriors, so who could also be in this movie, which would be awesome. That's stuff that in 2019 could definitely be put into a movie. Um, and that's why I said, so I, to me it's a five-star movie, but I 100% see why other people will mark it down. Uh, and to me, I don't mark it down because I'm aware that for a movie that was made in 1999, it's actually quite progressive. For a book source, and the book that this is based on features way more violence against women mm -hmm. than this movie does. So they, the director, the writer, made the choice to cut that out. Yeah. And yes, so therefore, like, there's, there aren't a lot of heavily, strongly featured women, but we're also not subjected to watching scenes where women are beaten and abused.
So, and I do have appreciation for that yeah, choice. So that's why, for me, it's not much of a thing. But again, I totally understand where Sarah comes from when she marks it down for it. So yeah, five stars for me, which is a really long way of me saying that this movie got overlooked because John McTiernan stole $100 million. <laughs> Five-star movie, I absolutely love it. I think if you watch it with an open mind, three out of five stars is the least you could give this movie, which is, it's one of those things which shows up all the time. If you're on movie websites like the Flophouse, like myself and Sarah met there, mm-hmm. uh, if somebody mentions The 13 Warrior, you won't find somebody who gives it a bad review. Yeah. You just will find it hard to find people who've actually watched it. Yeah, and I would I would recommend this movie, um, absolutely. I mean, there are things that I obviously, as I said, felt like I needed to kind of take off points for in terms of the final rating. But I would definitely tell somebody, you know, be aware of that. But yeah, watch this movie. I think this is an interesting, you know, depiction of the medieval world. It's a fun movie. It's genuinely enjoyable. Uh, yeah, no, I would 100%, you know, tell somebody, you know, watch this movie. Just don't expect a lot from the women characters. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Sarah, I think we should finish up the podcast. Yeah, so... Uh, as we wrap up, um, so first of all, to my guest today, who was once the host and now has become the guest, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you, you, right, I no longer do podcasts. I, I do the odd guest uh, appearance here and there if people are stuck. Um, I was like, oh, give me give me a day's notice and I'll fill in. But I just don't have time to do full-time podcast. Well, let's say full-time podcasting. So I used to be doing a podcast every week. Uh, or, you know, two in a week and stuff like this. But I just don't have the time now because I'm doing course. Yeah. So, and to all of the people who messaged me when I left, thank you very much. It was lovely of you to do so. And it, it meant a lot. Uh, and I know Sarah's about to read a review. And I notice here yep. that she picked a five-star review that doesn't mention me. <laughs> I think the review was written after you left. That's where they can find me. The answer is, you can't. Uh, but where can people uh, find you? And uh, what information do you have about Media Evil, the podcast? Yeah, so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. You can join our Facebook group, which is a great medieval-inspired community. And uh, you can send me an email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. And uh, if you send me any questions about the Middle Ages, I will answer them on this podcast in the future. If you have enjoyed this podcast today, uh, please make sure to subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app if you haven't already. And it will really be a great help if you can rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. And I will now be starting to read five-star reviews in future episodes. So I have one today from Ali85. Dr. Sarah Iftdecker brings her knowledge of the Middle Ages to movies and TV shows that are set between the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the Renaissance but occasionally the show strays into the early modern period too, historical periods being an artificial construct for convenience, etc., etc. Medieval-esque fantasy such as Game of Thrones and The Lord of the Rings is also considered fair game, though to date neither of these have been covered. A major theme of the show is assessing to what degree the film or show discussed confirms or challenges widely held prejudices that medieval life was always nasty, brutish, short, and devoid of any color, joy, or intellectual life whatsoever. It's a great concept brilliantly carried out. You should definitely give it a listen if you like to combine your giggles with some education. So thank you very much for that very kind review. And as I said, if you too want to be featured virtually on the podcast, you should also rate on iTunes. Sarah, can I, can I ask you just a very quick question? Yes. You see in that review, it says Western Roman Empire. And uh, how do you pronounce that next word? Renaissance. Oh, you pronounce it weird, I know. So the Americans Renaissance. say Renaissance. Oh, so, right. 
Because obviously in Europe, we pronounce that Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah, no, Americans don't do that. Okay, so are we pronouncing it wrong? I don't know that there is a wrong or right. It is a difference in pronunciation. Yeah. The so, other one, by the way, related is how would you refer to the name for the eastern part of the Roman Empire? The Byzantine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was I was taking for a second. I was going, wait, what came before the Ottomans? Yeah, the Byzantine. Yeah, no, so I was at this lecture and then someone was like, the Byzantine. And I'm like, I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely have it. It's a hard by. Um, and then Zan, and so it was. It's Byzantium. Yeah, we we don't so say that Byzantine. All right, that's weird. I never even occurred to me that um, yeah. we were doing it wrong. I just assumed that Renaissance. I I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would say that you are wrong and we're right. Uh, that's just how. Listen, Americans <laughs> always think that we're wrong. So actually, my argument I think would be that I think we're closer on Byzantine, but I think you're closer on Renaissance, arguably. Hmm. But it's, it's just, it's interesting to hear you say it because anytime you pronounce something, I just assume I'm wrong. So when you were like, it's like a really soft renaissance, I was like, I've been pronouncing that wrong all my life. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a US versus like Ireland, UK English thing. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, how, how is the Twitter going? The Twitter is going. I, I tweet on occasion. Uh, <laughs> Is how I would describe the Twitter. It's hard. I'm going to get onto it someday. I'm going to tweet on that thing someday. But yeah, it's, it's hard because I'm trying to keep up both the personal account and the podcast account. And then I end up like retweeting myself a lot, which feels awkward. But, you know. Sarah, how are you set for guests, future guests on the show? So I have some people who have expressed interest in being guests, but I am always looking for additional future guests on Media Evil. So uh, if you have not yet guested or if you have and would really like to come back, just, uh, you know, contact me, uh, you know, uh, tweet, tweet at me um, at Media <laughs> Evil Pod. <laughs> um, or uh, if you're in touch with me through the Facebook group, you can contact me there. And uh, let me know if you would like to be on the show and if there's something that especially you would like to talk about. And if it's something that uh, has not yet been featured, I would love to have you on and talk about that. Yeah. And for people listening who have never done podcasts before, everybody, absolutely everybody sits and says, I'd be no good at this. I, I, oh, I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, Sarah's the perfect person to start with that because oh, I guarantee you. you no podcasts you go on to are going to give you as detailed notes as Sarah does. <laughs> Nobody is going to have it as set up as you are. I've been on 30 different podcasts at this stage. Nobody does as good a job as Sarah F. Decker does of getting you set it up. You will be fine. And it's always better when you listen to any podcast if somebody is actually genuinely interested in the stuff to do. So I think back to the episode I listened to there two weeks ago with Mabel Slattery and she's talking about Maid Marion and I could tell that Maid Marion and her merry men and her merry men was important to her I mean I hated the show as a kid growing up but hearing her talk about it I could totally see why she don't like seeing all these women with agency these women with agency I want to see them have names like Olga uh, and nothing else (laughs) but anyway yeah so everybody's listening genuinely send in a message because if there's something that you like Sarah is going to know absolutely everything about the time period that's linked to, and she'll drag the best out of you, and you will have an absolute blast. Absolutely. So yeah, I so I would love to have on future uh, future listeners as guests. So please, yeah, get in touch. Uh, and I'm going to say good night because it's nine minutes past twelve, and I'm old and can't stay up any long anymore. <laughs>
and turn into a pumpkin? <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> Sarah, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me back on. Thank you so much for coming back in honor of the uh, one-year podcast anniversary of Mediable. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely miss being on the show every week, so it's or every two weeks. Um, and uh, for the listeners who want to hear me back, when Sarah finally, she's been taking her sweet time getting through the wheel of time. She's only done seven books in four months or whatever it's been. So she started <laughs> um, seven nearly thousand page books in four months. It's pretty damn impressive. But when she finally gets around and she finishes her first read through, I'll come back for the episode on uh, the wheel of time. And if you think I was talking effusively about this, you have to wait until you hear me. <laughs> completely ignore any criticism of the Wheel of Time. <laughs> I am loving Wheel of Time. So, I will be. I, you know, might get a five. I'm not going to make any promises yet, but you know, maybe that's going to get a five star. It might. If you, if you knock that down, Sarah, <laughs> I just walk off the podcast before it's <laughs> just going to see my dad and be like, nope. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks a million, Sarah.